5: Follow the Prophet is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. Relationships require work, especially if you are two of the world's greatest economies and you're having a hard time seeing eye to eye on trade and foreign policy. That's why we're going to take a look at the financial and political drama that exists between the U.S. and China, also known as the Chimerica relationship. Plus, for those of you who know how to cook well, the thought of opening a restaurant may have come to mind at a certain point. But ask anyone who has a restaurant. It's not just about the food. There's marketing, there's consulting, and even, get this, event planning. Our next guest has done that all, is a friend of mine, and he's here to share his insight. I'm David Grosso, and this is Follow the Profit. Are you looking to get rich quick? There's plenty of podcasts out there for that. Here on Follow the Prophet, we try to deconstruct what's happening economically, politically, socially, and everything that's connected to all of that. But most importantly, how all of that pertains to our economy so that you can use your money to help you. And for many people who cook, they love to do so. For those that open a restaurant, it's their passion. It's their lifestyle. For our guest, Sanjay LaForest, it's all of that, along with an entrepreneurial spirit. He started very early by organizing events at his father's catering hall. The venue had an occupancy of 400 people with three event rooms. He hosted a variety of events, ranging from corporate occasions to Sweet 16s, and that's where Sanjay implemented many strategic marketing tactics for his events and the venue to be successful as possible. Today, he has two restaurants, and he's the owner and founder of the Privé Group, I guess we would say Privé Group here in the United States, a marketing and the consulting firm. How you doing, Sanjay? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me, David. Entrepreneurship, specifically food entrepreneurship, runs in your family. Tell me a little bit about your origin story. Well, my
6: parents were always involved in the restaurant industry, and then they had an opportunity to open their own catering hall on Long Island. And uh, this was around the age of 12, 13. So I grew up with it. I wasn't really working at that age, but I was definitely in the restaurant scene and throughout the catering hall scene for those years. And once it became, I turned 17, I was looking for a side job and a part-time job so i started to work as a waiter in the catering hall and then i started to learn the ins and outs of the industry and the ins and outs of the kitchen and the and what it takes to actually run a profitable and good business and then after that i started to organize a few smaller events at the catering hall so i was i I became i started as a waiter and then i became a manager
5: and then i started to organize a few events and that's my etymology sanjay is always interesting right because You have a name that's i would associate with the subcontinent and then la forest right sounds very french so tell me a little bit about your background and your family lore and how that's affected your cooking so my mother
6: is indian my father is haitian which he has ties to africa and france so i speak french fluently and i definitely have always been geared towards the french culture and that's why i chose the name le privé so privé in french means private and exclusive and we thought that was the best name to start a company it started off as an event planning company and then it went from event planning to marketing to
5: consulting to now a restaurant so this ran in your family you have this bicultural experience right and you're bringing it all to the table has really indian spices kind of Influence the way you view French and now you own a Mexican restaurant as well. Are you kind of mixing all of these cuisines to create original dishes?
6: Well, they are mixed together. So we do for a Lu is a classic French restaurant. So we don't want to mess with the classic French cuisine as much. Although our soup a is a little bit spicier than others. So not I wouldn't say spicy, but it has a little kick to it. Let's just put it that way. People love it. That's our most sold dish at the restaurant. But I do think we infuse more of the cultural Caribbean, Indian spices in our cuisine for sure.
5: So where did you get the idea to just kind of run your own show? Because it seems like you were set up with a turnkey business, right? You could have just stayed in the family business, did events, you had a reputation, you were out on Long Island. What brought you to New York City to do your own thing?
6: I would say it might be me being the black sheep to be honest with you. So I left the comfortable situation on Long Island. I worked for my mentor, who was a real estate company on Long Island for a few years after that, after graduating college. And then I came to the city, and I went to an event at the Trump Towers World Bar, and I met this guy, he was organizing events, and I'm like, well, he's like, well, I'm organizing events, and this is what I do for a living. I'm like, wow, that's pretty interesting living, that you're going to organize events and socialize with people. And I didn't understand how hard it was at the time, but I thought to myself, I think I could do this. Well, how do you make your money, I asked him. And he said, well, the owner of the Trump Towers World Bar he came over to me and he gives me 25% of the revenue for the events that I organize, And I'm allowed to charge at the door, keep a hundred percent of that. They give me marketing budgets and they give me budgets for doing the staffing for the event as well. So I said to myself, wow, it it was almost like a a cartoon character with like money signs in their eyes. And I'm like, oh, this might be a good idea. It might be something for me. And at that time I was still living on Long Island working for my mentor, uh, Banana Realty, who has a real estate company. And then I, decided to go up to the owner of the world bar. And I said to him, and I had studied law. And so I came up with this big contract, this big, beautiful contract. And I told him, well, I'd like to, I had no experience. I didn't really tell him I had no experience. I told him I had experience in organizing events on Long Island, which might've been seven or eight years prior to this to, uh, went in with this big, beautiful contract that I learned uh, from studying pre-law and he's like, wow, you should be a lawyer because this is a crazy contract. And I'm like, well, I just want to organize one event at your place. Organized one event at his, uh, at the Trump Tower's World Bar on Forty Eighth Street, and he loved it. And I invited my friends, my family. I knew nothing about marketing. I, I wasn't really. I didn't knew, didn't know much about promotions. And it was just the in, in, the immediate people who I knew. But I did see how I could generate revenue doing this in, on the long term. It took me about two months to organize an event with 150 people. After that, I went through, it went about six years of me organizing events. I started organizing one event every two weeks, one event every month. And then once I started organizing an event a week, I moved to New York city, got my office in a small doctor's office, um, and then started hiring people to help
5: me organize events. And then I can give you the story from there as well. It's always interesting because there's always a moment, and I always tell people this, sometimes the train only comes by once, and it seems like you equated to the cartoon character with money signs, and it's something that lightning strikes only once. So you have to seize that opportunity and just push through. I did seize that opportunity. Obviously, I, I had no
6: funding. I possibly had a little bit of savings at the time, and then I, I, all I could afford was a small six by six foot room in a doctor's office, but I needed an office to look professional. So it was one of his small office rooms that he wasn't using. So we rented it. And then I started hiring people who were in the events industry in New York City already doing their events as well. So then I started to have interns from France. So that's what led my ties to a lot of the French culture and getting our clients from France as well, uh, the French consulate. So then. Two, three, four years later, we saw that the business was growing. And as you might might or might not know, event planning is very closely tied to marketing because you're showing the impressions that you have of people who are attending your events or people who see your events. And then people started to contact me for smaller brands to do their marketing, to start their startup business. And then bigger groups and restaurants and event spaces started to contact me to do their marketing and their promotions and their events. And then it went from there to... Wow, I could even do the staffing. And then I started to learn the systems of the restaurants that I already had a background in, but everything evolves, right? Marketing is never the same. It's not the same that it was five years ago. It's not the same that it was two months ago. And we were constantly evolving. And then ended up about four years after I had a penthouse office on wall street, doing big events for Upsilon ventures, big events um, across the country. And then uh, the, the company was booming. But I knew that with my marketing background and my consulting background that I always wanted to own my own space. I had these clients and they were paying me and they were paying me great money for me to build their business and do the consulting for them and for them to take all the credit for it. So I knew at some point in time, whether it was a restaurant, whether it was a nightclub, whether it was an event space, I knew at some point in time that I would actually own my own space. And here we are now, David.
5: Wow. So tell me, how are your parents doing? Donna Marie's on Long Island. And tell me a little bit about Casa del Toro over there in New York. And of course, your marquee French eatery, Le Privé.
6: Well, my parents are doing great. They are currently in Florida in Boca, where I believe you are. You're in the South as well. Now, Um, of course, (laughs) they're doing great. They go out to eat. They, they, they enjoy wonderful dinners. They're in their retirement phase. So they're no longer in the restaurant industry and Casa del Toro, that is booming. So as you know, we opened Casa del Toro in December of 2019. So it was pre COVID and. Two months into it, we find out that we have to shut down because of COVID. Today, we were at 35% capacity. Thank you, Governor Cuomo, for allowing us to do that. And I see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's growing a lot. We're allowed to have outdoor dining. People are coming to eat. A lot more people are knowing our reservations on Friday and Saturday. We don't have enough tables for the amount of people that want to sit at the restaurant. So it's absolutely wonderful. Le Privé is a household name. Now it has become that. I'm happy to hear. A lot of people who were coming to Le Quivet were the out-of-towners. They were doing their pre-theater dinner, or after the theater, they would come eat, and everybody wants to enjoy um, French cuisine when going to the theater.
5: We're going to take a quick break here. Be right back.
1: L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start.
7: L-A-S-I-K,
0: LASIK.com.
7: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested.
5: So Sanjay, now that we got your history, let's start to unpack stuff. What happened in New York and what have you done for the past year? Because it seems like that's been the latest chapter in this adventure of Sanjay LaForest. Like, what on earth went through your head when suddenly everything shut down? And you're in events and restaurants, the most heavily affected industry.
6: I'm speechless right now because I, I was speechless then when I found out I, I did not know where to begin. I did not know what we would do, but more so, I understand we had to close because obviously this virus is real and people die and and it is contagious and there are a lot of things that are wrong, that are dangerous with it, but I think that our politicians definitely handled it wrong. Look, you're in the south currently and the numbers are not are not growing. They, they, they've been open more than we have for, I, I believe, six to seven months. And I'm just in shock by how the politicians handle this because the politicians closed down New York City indoor dining in December, and the rate was a lot lower than what it is now. So I, I don't understand the decision-making process. The decision-making process does not add up for me whatsoever.
5: Are people going to survive, Sanjay? Like what percentage of your friends in New York are actually going to be able to reopen their restaurants?
6: There's not a large percentage. I know a lot of my friends have closed their restaurants, some of them temporarily, because restaurants are only profitable at really 25%. So if we're only profitable at 25% and you're allowing us to only have a 25% capacity, we're dead in the water, you know? And that's why... I say hold the fort, I believe New York city is very resilient and that I'm confident and I'm optimistic. And I think that that's in the nature of being an entrepreneur is that you, you have to be that. And I think that the investment that people have made, the millions of dollars that they they spent on their restaurant, if they can allow themselves to hold the fort for a little bit longer, I believe everything will turn.
5: Yeah, but in the meantime, you know, it's rumored Goldman Sachs already bought their building down here in Florida. Our laissez-faire policies on this are driving your, basically your customer base to here. So have you thought of leaving and maybe reopening Le Privé in, in Miami? Is that something that's crossed your mind?
6: I've always considered opening Le Privé in the South, in Florida, in Miami, but am I leaving because I don't believe New York City will will recover no it's because I just want to grow the brand I do think that the economy in Miami is booming now I mean real estate's booming everything is booming and it's it's because the majority of all my friends they're not here they're all in Miami they're all in Florida they're all in South Florida they're all in Orlando they're all in Boca they're all moving around down there and spending money, and going to eat, and enjoying life, and renting yachts, and all their capital is being used in Florida, whereas it used to be used in New York, and basically eating at my restaurant. These are the people who would come and eat and enjoy, and we no longer have that. So there's a good majority of people who are in the South now.
5: Are they going to come back, Sanjay? I think that's the most pressing question that I'm mulling around. I was late to this interview because I was stuck in a traffic snarl here in Orlando, and people don't understand that, like, life is normal here.
6: That's, that's incredible. It's beyond me. It's beyond me. Will it come back? That's a great question. I believe it will. To what extent? I don't know. If it comes back at 75%, I think that we're lucky. I'm here and I continuously invest in my business and I'm continuously uh, growing outdoor enclosures and investing in heating and, and investing thousands and thousands of dollars because I believe it will come back. To what extent? At 100%, I don't know. I don't think so. We we used to generate a lot of money from tourism and will that ever happen again? I I don't know, or will it be a five-year plan? I don't know, but do I think that within the next year, 2021, we will come back? Yes, I do.
5: So let's be honest about this, Sanjay. For people who haven't been, because this is the number one question I get, I spent half the pandemic here in Florida and half the pandemic in New York. New York's a little grimy right now. I love New York. I consider it my second home, but how is New York going to recover considering the current state and the lack of attention to basic things like security and cleanliness and just common sense government? And I'm, I'm struggling to see how people like you won't just throw up their hands and take off.
6: There have been many people who have done so. Maybe I'm stubborn, David. I don't know if that's what the case is, but just an example, you mentioned security. They're building homeless shelters a few blocks away, and all the hotels that used to have our clients that would come and spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a French meal or a Mexican meal, um, they have homeless people living there now. So there are homeless people roaming around the streets in New York City, and there's there are no controls. There, It seems like there are less police. My managers who have to kick out a homeless person at the restaurant almost every day. The insecurity here is, 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 is growing, so maybe it's just that I'm stubborn, but I, I don't know why many people don't move. Maybe it's because I'm heavily invested. I spent a lot of money, I spent a lot of time, I spent many years on these two babies that we've grown, and I don't want to see them die, but I, I understand why people would leave.
5: So what would you suggest for entrepreneurs? Because you're an entrepreneur in a high tax state and specifically in the worst part, because it's a city that really does nothing for entrepreneurs. In fact, I've, I would go as far to say as it hurts entrepreneurs. And it used to just be the great compromise, right? That this is where you have to come to make your money because it's New York. But now New York isn't what it used to be now. So where does that leave entrepreneurs like you?
6: It's, it's always been difficult to make it in New York. I mean that the quote, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. I believe that. I think that entrepreneurs have to follow their own path. That's the thing about being an entrepreneur. You're creating something new. You're following your own vision, your own path. You're seeing profit in things that other people don't see. You're going to follow that to no do. And a lot of us fail. The majority of us do fail and you can't be afraid of failure. And you have to continuously be resilient. That's that's the basic advice I would give them.
5: And how about geography? Would you suggest they double down on New York or should they be following economic trends to places like Texas, Florida, Utah, etc.?
6: I'm doubling down on New York and it looks as though I'm going to be opening a few different restaurants. Within 2021, because the pricing is better, because you're getting a bargain, and because the landlords are currently understanding of the current situation and they're optimistic of growing back. So our entrepreneurs will find value in different places. I find value here, right now.
5: So I would say New York. Yeah, because everyone's running away. Isn't that fascinating? Sometimes in the darkest moment, there is business opportunity. So when you see everyone running one way, that creates an opportunity window for people like you. Correct. Correct. So just restaurant 101, if you're someone who wants to open a restaurant and obviously you own high-end restaurants in New York, but let's just say, you know, you live in Missouri, like where my cousins live, and you dream of owning your own restaurant, is now a good time? And what is your advice for those people?
6: The ground roots for me are completely different than a lot of other restaurateurs. Some of them are chefs. Some of them just have a large lump sum of capital that they'd like to invest and it's cool to open a restaurant. And the other ones like me come from a marketing background. So let's just say, for instance, you have hundred thousand dollars. You're going to invest in your restaurant. You're going to build your restaurant. I would say to build a restaurant, you invest $200,000 on the, the building the restaurant, the systems in place, and then the rest of the money gets invested in the marketing aspect, gets invested in the consulting aspect. Because if you build something that's beautiful, let's say you spend a hundred thousand dollars, if nobody knows about the restaurant that you built, nobody will come. So it's better that they know that you actually exist. So I think that marketing is the foundation for me at a restaurant, if you're opening any restaurant for that matter. So that's the advice I would give studying the demographics, figuring out if you can actually get those people there, what the demographics are, if they're going to enjoy the type of cuisine and whatever you're offering them. So that that ties into the marketing aspect as well.
5: And what about right now, things are shifting to delivery, and we've seen a lot of news on you know how all of these companies, they'll remain nameless, but you know who they are, take a huge commission. Do you do delivery, or do you just hard pass because it's not profitable? I hard pass because it's not profitable,
6: because these companies take 30 to 35% of your delivery fee. We tried, we did have it at the beginning of the pandemic and it was just, the packaging wasn't done, wasn't proper, to have to reheat escargot or whole fish, a Branzino doesn't make sense, or to order a nice steak and then have to reheat it and have it be overcooked and not cooked the way you want it, it just doesn't add up for us, so I stay away from that, aside from the fact from the fees that these companies are charging and taking advantage of the small mom and pop stores.
5: Is there anything we could do about that because all of us order delivery. I'm sure you do, Sanjay. It's sometimes just cold, rainy, you're lazy, like, you know, like it happens to all of us, right? Netflix chill and Uber Eats. What's your advice? I'm guilty of actually using some of these companies. I'm guilty
6: of actually using them up until about 6 months ago. I'm on the back end as well. I know that they're charging 30%, but it's just a click of a button on your phone. That's how easy it is. Now I would say you should call the restaurant. I would say that restaurants should implement a system where it's easy for people to click on their phone to order the food because it's, I mean, to spend another five to seven dollars for you to be able to click, it's a convenience of things, but to, to help these restaurants, I would call them, I would take the time out because it does add that you have to give them your credit card over again, you have to give them the expiration date, so forth and so on, and people, and we're the city that never sleeps, we're the city that moves quickly, so people want to move quickly with, what, with everything they're doing. I would definitely say, take a few more minutes to help the restaurant out by, by just calling
5: them. I'm surprised Sanjay, no one's come up with a low commission app. I wonder if that's uh, ripe for that. I'm surprised as well. I hope so.
6: Maybe that's our million dollar idea, right David?
5: Yeah, well, thirty-five percent for you know food in a low-margin business seems a bit abusive. But you know, <laughs> I'll defer to your judgment, Sanjay. I don't own restaurants,
6: so it absolutely is abusive. They're taking advantage of us.
5: Well, on that note, listen, Sanjay, we really appreciate your time. We'd love to have you here in Florida. You know, I don't mean to uh, put on my Florida economic development hat, but I'm looking forward to the opening of your theoretical Florida restaurant eventually.
6: As of mine. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it
5: greatly. We're going to take a quick break here. Be right back.
9: L A S -S -S I K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K,
0: LASIK.com.
5: So the goal of Follow the Profit is to deconstruct what's going on in the economy so that you can use your money to help yourself. So today I'm gonna delve into one of the sexiest, glitziest portions of the economy. Oh boy, here we go. Foreign trade between the US and China. Some people like to call it chimerica, it's very catchy. And if there's one thing you need to know about our relationship, it's that the US is economically linked to China, Probably more than any country outside of maybe Mexico and Canada because they're right next door. But here's the big deal that you need to remember. We're economically linked, but we're definitely not friends. U.S. and China, not in a relationship. (laughs) Just money, not so good on the diplomacy front. Our allies are countries like Japan and Germany and side note, you know, 80 years ago, these were our mortal enemies and now they're some of our best allies and we trade billions of dollars of goods and services with them. However, with China, it's a different story. If you get into a time machine and go back for decades after the communist revolution over there, China and the U.S. didn't have any formal relations. That was until one big thing happened back in 1972 when President Nixon visited China. Unprecedented action at the moment. And a few years later, in 79, both countries signed a trade agreement. And the amount of trade at that time was a paltry $4 billion. Today, it's $600 billion. So that makes China America's third largest trading partner. Of course, Canada, Mexico are the other two because they're right next door. So take a look around your house. Everything's made in China. We're definitely in a relationship. We may not be friends, but we're dependent on each other. And there's one aspect of this dependence that is especially scary. U.S. debt. Here's how it works. The U.S., if you haven't noticed, our federal government is bloody broke. And they're always needing to raise money to fund our deficits. So the U.S. offers up T-bills, treasury securities. And that means someone buys the bond. So basically, they're just buying our debt. It's actually a stellar asset a lot of people around the world want to buy it so the u.s government borrows money and pays back the amount of the bond plus interest and for the most part it's a very reliable form of investment and guess what everyone can buy these things these t-bills it's just debt and everyone knows that the united states probably will never default just like Germany will never default and probably Japan will never default. So there's certain countries where people just park their money because it's safe to do so. And that's the case with U.S. T-bills. And what's really interesting, and it's not only individuals, right, and corporations and people right here, but people anywhere can buy T-bills. So guess what? China has bought a lot of T-bills, specifically the government, to the tune of, get this, $1 trillion. $1 trillion. A trillion gets thrown around a lot now in corona times. But do you understand how much a trillion dollars is? It's numerically challenging to understand the scale of a trillion dollars. So guess what? China owns a trillion dollars of our debt. So there's always been one concern that the U.S. has with China holding so many treasuries is currency devaluation. So let's, let's talk this out. If China were to start buying up more U.S. treasuries, the value of the dollar would go up. A more valuable dollar would make American products more expensive and would therefore make Chinese products less expensive. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. But basically, you know what? They have so much control that any sort of buying and selling that they do because they're one of our largest holders of debt overseas means that they can influence the value of the dollar. And interestingly, China is a notorious currency manipulator. You see, everything is made in China, not just because, you know, the system over there makes things more efficient because it's just command and control. It's also because they've artificially deflated their yuan renminbi, which is their currency. In effect, making their products cheaper. It's made it so that American companies cannot do business without China. So guess what? Everything's made in China. That's starting to change. There was a trade war during the Trump administration to try to diversify our supply chains. But China is so embedded in our supply chains. Everything from pharmaceuticals, yes, those pills grandma is taking, they have to do with China. The clothes on my body, the microphone that I'm using right now, the camera, the computer. I just bought a new house. Half of it is made in China. My floor is made in China. China is so interwoven into the American economy, and vice versa for that matter, and the global economy, that how do you begin to disaggregate this toxic relationship? Because guess what? We all have dynamic economies and industries, and we want China to do well because the Chinese government may not be our friend. But regular Chinese people deserve economic opportunity. And here's the problem, though. The Chinese government is not our friend. They're, in fact, our enemy. And we don't see eye to eye on anything on foreign policy. And they're doing everything they can to become the next superpower. So, in effect, our trinkets, the stuff we're buying, the cell phone I'm playing with, the floor in my house is inadvertently funding our enemies. And that's not good. In the beginning, it was great business. Really, China's a big market, right? You know, you have to understand that China is four times the size of America in population. It's a really big market. It's hard to say no to China. And it's a cheap place to manufacture. And they've been losing at that game. It's getting more expensive to manufacture in China. And manufacturing, if you check out your tennis shoes, they're probably made in Vietnam now because it's cheaper. Nevertheless, China's a really efficient place to manufacture. And they've really interwoven themselves into everything we do, not just in America, everywhere. China is now an essential part of our ability to do business. And that doesn't bode well for diplomacy. If you are dependent on someone, how do you begin to bring them to the negotiation table? If you fund them, how do you begin to hold them accountable for behavior? It's very challenging from a diplomatic perspective because there's no carrot and stick we tried the trade war guess what it didn't work americans paid those tariffs it devastated small businesses and it negated the tax cuts that congress passed in 2017 so you know this is a long-term problem this is something we can't ignore and there's a lot of great things coming out of china i don't mean to rain on every china parade right But the Chinese government is actively undermining us around the world and really democracy for that matter. So this isn't just America. This is us and all our allies around the world. And we are by accident paving the path to a new substantial threat to our way of life on this planet through cheap manufacturing. Maybe we should begin to evaluate what we're doing and change what we're doing. And that's going to take some buy-in from corporate America and some incentivization from our federal government here in America. So thanks to all of you for joining me as we follow the profit. and a big thanks to Sanjay LaForest. He's gave us so much insight. It was such a fun interview into marketing, to the restaurant world. Check out his restaurant, Le Privé and Casa de Toro, if you're ever in New York. I won't be there anytime soon, but when I do, I will be checking out his stuff. And as always, I am nothing without my esteemed team around me. That includes Emiliano Limon, Scott Handler, Cheyenne Reed, and of course, our executive producers, former speaker of the house, Newt Gingrich, and my all-star, Debbie Myers. I'm your host, David Grasso. If you're enjoying the show, give us five stars, give us a review, we read those. We wanna listen to what you think about the show so that we can make the show better. Follow the Prophet is a production of Gingrich 360 and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
10: All opinions expressed by David Grasso and his guests on the show are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Gingrich 360 or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated by David Grasso on this podcast television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by David Grasso as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. David Grasso's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither Gingrich Productions nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy and it should not be relied upon as such. David Grasso, Gingrich Productions. Its affiliates and or subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on this website. David Grasso's statements and opinions are subject to change without notice. No part of David Grasso's compensation from Gingrich Productions is related to the specific opinions he expresses. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Neither David Grasso nor Gingrich 360 guarantees any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this website or on the show. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this website or on the show may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. You must take an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this website or on the show. Before acting on information on this website or on the show, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor.
4: slash compatibility.